Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Well, it's good to see everyone on this Resurrection Sunday. And in the time-honored tradition, I will say, He is risen, and you will say, He is risen indeed. Yeah, I, I knew I had to kind of, kind of prime you for that, you know. Yeah, so we'll, 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 that was just the instruction. Now we'll actually do it for real. This is the demonstration. So, Christ is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. And it is today that we've come to celebrate, commemorate, reflect on, and give consideration to that fact. And particularly what that means to us. What does that mean to us individually? God is good. God is great. God is awesome in power and majesty. He is unmatchable. There is no one like him. He is irreplaceable, undisputable. That is the God that we serve. And we're going to rejoice in his goodness today. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do come before you with thanksgiving. We bless and honor and praise your name for no other reason apart from the fact that you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. You are magnificent in all of your perfections. Lord, we stand in awe of you today, recognizing your greatness. And Lord, as we come, this is more than just a, a feast day, a festival. This is more than just a, a you know, extended bank holiday weekend. This is a time when we come and give testimony to the fact that we believe Christ is risen. We believe the testimony that you have given of yourself, that you have shown yourself strong in raising your son from the dead. And truly, by means of that, we have been justified. We've been set free. And we thank you, Lord. And so as we come today, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and minds, that we would have an openness, Lord, to hear what you would speak to us by your spirit. It's all about you, Lord, and your goodness and your mercy towards us. We thank you and we bless your name. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the finale of our Rescued series. And today we're looking at being rescued from guilt and shame. Rescued from guilt and shame. We started off with the rescued from responsibility, the fact that Christ came and took responsibility. He made himself accountable for our sin. When God should have been pointing the finger at us, he pointed it at Christ. And Jesus gave himself willingly to take responsibility for our sin. And then Pastor Rob led us through the fact that we've been rescued from rejection that we have been adopted into the family of God through Christ's death on the cross, granting us license, permission, right, authority to be children of God. 
Then we went from there and Neil took us through the fact that we are rescued from slavery. Like a prisoner in chains, we were bound slaves to sin and Satan. And yet Jesus came and freed us, having been oppressed, enslaved by the sinful men that he made with his own, his own power. And yet, allowing himself to be enslaved, tortured and crucified, we experienced the freedom, the fact that we've been rescued from slavery. And on Friday, Good Friday, Brother Mark took us through the fact that we have been rescued from anger. We have been rescued from God's wrath. Not just any old anger, but the anger of God towards sin. God is holy. God is pure. God is perfect. He is the almighty, the sovereign one to whom every individual is supposed to bow in submission. And any act of defiance is treason. Treason, high treason. And we deserve to experience the anger of God. We deserve it. And yet he poured out his anger on Christ toward our sin so that we could be forgiven. So we no longer need to live in fear that God's going to bang us over the head with a big hammer. Jesus absorbed the anger of God, the wrath of God, so that we could be rescued from anger. And today we're going to give consideration to the fact that we've been rescued from guilt and shame. Rescued from guilt and shame. Now the focus of our consideration is going to be the resurrection. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. All right. Now some of you don't sound too confident. Some of you sound a bit like you've been watching like Zeitgeist on, on, on YouTube or listen to some of them other conspiracy theories and like, oh, did he really rise from the dead though? Listen, we go out, we go out on a Friday, we do evangelism at Brixton and you hear all kinds of sagas and stories out there. But I want to come and tell you that Jesus never even existed. That's how far people have gone in their thinking, that they've embraced this idea that was introduced about 100 years ago, that actually, let's just even deny he even existed. Even though Jesus is reported and recorded by historians who are not Christians. Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, Romans, you've got Jews, Rome, people that are not Christians, that have no allegiance to Christ, reporting the fact that he lived and he done mighty works. And in the same manner, you can't deny that Christ lived. Really, you, you, you really have to be very gassed to want to assume that position. Now, why do I say that? I say that with, with the authority of Scripture. Am I being um, derogatory? Am I being dismissive or rude? Well, it don't get no more rude than this if that's the case. 
God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Wow, that's raw. Fool, you know. Well, Jesus Christ is the God-man. God manifest in the flesh. And the supreme form of validation and authentication was his resurrection from the dead. And so we will see that if we're to deny that, you might as well deny the very existence of God. Christ is risen. And the Bible goes on to communicate the fact that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, purchased our justification. He purchased our justification. We have been justified. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul said it like this. In Romans 4, 22 to 25, it says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is speaking of Abraham as you look at the context. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Not just for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, we understand that the seal of approval given by God was him raising Christ from the dead. The sacrifice of Christ was openly demonstrated as being acceptable and sufficient in the sight of God. It don't matter what anyone else thinks of it. It really don't matter what anyone else thinks of it. At the end of the day, it matters what God thinks of it. Imagine you go shopping and you're going to buy something for someone's birthday. And this is something that they have asked you for, specifically. And so you go and you buy this item and you have a friend with you and they look at it and they say, nah, not sure about that, you know. I can't really see them in that. That, that really. And you're going to stand there now with a dilemma on your hands or not? No dilemma, right? Why not? Because it don't matter what your friend says. At the end of the day, the person you're buying it for has asked for the item. They must know what they want. Likewise, Christ, his sacrifice, having lived a sinless life, was determined by God. It was predicted by God. It was prescribed by God as being the only means of salvation. Only means. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. But God validated it. He gave it his rubber stamp of authentication. You know, like when you get software, right? And it's got that hologram on it and it says, authentic Microsoft software. Some of you haven't seen one of them for a while, have Because <laughs> you don't know about them authentication stickers. <laughs> and you know, when you get the thing that flashes up and it says that... Um, <laughs> that your, your, your machine can be read by, shall we send this report to Microsoft? And you're like, no. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't want them to know what kind of system I'm running. <laughs> and so the resurrection is crucial. Now, there are people who would say, you know what? It never happened. And as we give some consideration, we will recognize that that was actually a proposition that was put forward. That idea was circulated from the beginning. And so let's give some consideration to the resurrection today. Okay. If you would, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to read through to chapter 28, verse 20. I know Pastor Rob read through a section of the resurrection account earlier. Many missed that. Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible and you have good eyesight, you can follow along on the screen. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So Joseph, who was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, And we are told in in other gospel accounts that he didn't agree with the decision of the Sanhedrin to crucify Christ. He was a man with money and he had a fresh tomb that was cut out of the rock. And only people with money could have a fresh tomb cut out of rock. Because you have to remember, back in those days, they didn't have hilty drills. You know what it's like when you're trying to put shelves up in your house, right? And you reach that piece of the wall that is just stubborn. And your little, your little black and decker ain't doing it. It's not cutting it. B- drill bit starts to burn and... <laughs> hasn't got the power. And someone says to you, yeah, you know what you need? You need a hilti. That's what you need. A hill who? <laughs> so where do I get one of those from? So, oh, well, tradesman. And then you go to HSS and you have to hire... And it's this big old drill and, you know, like two bursts of that and you've gone through. They never had hilty drills in those days. So to be cutting tombs out of rock was an expensive job for a number of men, a number of laborers. Joseph had money. In fact, it was actually prophesied that the Messiah would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Let's keep it moving. So Joseph took the body, verse 59, wrapped it in a cleaning linen shroud, linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now it is recognized that the stone that would have been rolled over the entrance of the tomb would have been about a two to two and a half ton. Two and a half ton. I'm there thinking of Triumph's lyric, you know. Who moved the two ton tombstone boulder? It was a two and a half ton tombstone boulder. 
And in order for it to be rolled into place, they dug a slight hill upon which they pushed the tomb up and then they wedged it. They pushed the rock up, sorry, and then they wedged it. They wedged the rock. And having wedged the rock, when it was time to seal it, all they would need to do is to pull the wedge, the rock would roll down into the groove that had been designed for it, and it would be sealed. Now you can imagine that a two-ton boulder would have taken a lot of guys to move in the first place uphill. Once they got it uphill, they weren't going to be quick to release that wedge. Somebody stops for lunch break, leans against the rock. Oh, where's my sandwiches? Starts feeling around, wedge is gone. He would probably lose more than his job. And so this was a huge stone that sealed the tomb. And when Jesus had been put in, they rolled it down the hill into the groove and sealed it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Now listen to what they're testifying to. They're testifying to the fact that Jesus predicted his resurrection and they fully understood that. After three days, I will rise. Therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Let his disciples, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Two certain methods of security, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, when you read the term sealing the stone, it might seem as though, okay, the stone was put in place in front of the tomb and they made sure it was properly in place. No. What they went on to do was to put a Roman seal on the stone and that's what it means by sealing the stone they put a Roman you know like when you get the hot wax like they used to do back in the day and they have the big ring when you watch those old time films and they're all wearing flower guys are wearing flowery blouses and whatever and they'd have the big ring and they'd put the ring in the wax and then they would seal the document and that was their emblem signifying that their authority was that, that that document was secured by their authority. And so they would seal the tomb with the Roman seal, and it basically implied if anyone breaks this seal, they will be killed. The authority of Rome. Well. Huh? 
<laughs> Listen. They sealed the stone and set a guard. So this was like double safe, double secure, surely fastened. Now, the guards, being Roman guards, were highly trained. And this guard troop that would have been guarding the stone would have done so at the expense of their life. They knew how to, in a very regimented and obviously military fashion, stay alert and stay on watch. And they had a, a system by which one would sleep, one would stay awake, so on and so forth, always having sufficient numbers, alert and ready to meet any oncoming threat. These were the Romans. Now, when you think about history, some of you doing GCSE history right now, and you might have talked about the Romans and so on, or you remember that from the distant past. You know that one of the things that the Roman Empire was noted for was the strength of its army. It was a military machine. They transformed the world. They took over the world by the might and discipline and regimented skill of their soldiers. So these weren't some lightweight, half-drunk guys that couldn't get a job nowhere else, just loafing by the tomb. This was a Roman guard unit. If anyone were to get past them as a unit, whoever was on watch at that time would be put to death for that breach of security. So they were literally guarding it with their lives. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. What a sight. Rolled back the stone and sat on it. Like what? <laughs> his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These hardcore marine type Roman soldiers trembled. This guard unit of at least 20 men trembled at the sight of this one angel. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. 
while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So you notice, they didn't go back to their Roman headquarters. They went to the chief priest. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, think about this. Your reputation as a Roman soldier is on the line. Your reputation is on the You're a Roman soldier trained by the, 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 the generals of great Caesar himself and some Galilean fishermen are going to come and rumble your guard unit and take out a dead body, having moved the two-ton stone. Does that actually make sense? Does that sound in any way credible? Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now that would have been their greatest concern. They didn't go to the governor because they knew if they did, over. And so they now have assurances. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, is it a wonder, I ask, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical account, has been irrepressible throughout history? For 2,000 years, the account has not been able to be silenced. Is it any wonder? The only other option is a few disciples rumbled a Roman guard unit and took the body. Not likely to gain much traction, right? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now if this was a lie, they wouldn't have included the fact that some doubted. If this was a lie, they would want to make it sound as convincing as they possibly could. We saw him and it was amazing and we all started floating in his presence and they're going to sensationalize it. And yet it's an honest account. Some weren't sure. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is what the apostles done. They witness Jesus raised from the dead. This is after Jesus was openly killed. 
naked, hanging on a cross before all of Jerusalem. And this wasn't like a minor event. It's not like somebody said, oh, you hear what happened in Brixton the other day? Someone got their purse robbed around by Iceland. Really? No, I never heard anything about that. This wasn't some kind of minor, small-scale event. This was the talk of the town. We know this because in the book of Luke, when Jesus appears to Cleopas and his brethren on the road to Emmaus, he says, what are you talking about? And they say to him, haven't you heard what happened to Jesus? I mean, in front of all of Jerusalem. Like, where have you been? Not realizing that they're talking to the risen Lord himself. So it was public knowledge that Jesus was properly dead and buried. And yet the apostles, having met with Jesus, went on to testify of the resurrection. Look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. (laughs) It was not possible for death to hold him down. It's like when you watch them films and you see this this one fighter and and it's, it's always some like this mad scenario, right? It's like got 20 guys. And some have got swords and some have got clubs. And this one fighter and he's there fighting them off and then he gets grabbed and he just shakes them off and they go flying. And Listen, death could not hold Jesus in the grave. Death couldn't hold him. Death tried. Three days he was dead. But it was a struggle. Because one more powerful than death had arrived. Jesus the Christ, risen from the dead. Death couldn't hold him down. Oh my days. Listen, I remember a song by the, um, what was then the inspirational choir, going back to the days when Bishop John Francis was the director of the inspirational choir a long time before he became a pastor. And there was a concert in two in. Um, Beechcroft Road, NTA. And they sang this song. Oh my gosh, historic moment. Still got the tape. Tapula. <laughs> Death card, hold it down. No, no. What? True. Anyway. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 13. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God. You know you just love that when it's in scripture, right? But God. The ultimate conjunction. But God. Raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. You will know the indeed by the time we're finished. (laughs) 
It was prophesied, Psalm 16, verse 10. It's quoted about four or five times in the New Testament, this one verse. That God would not cause his Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22 is the psalm of all psalms predicting the death of the Messiah. With such intricate detail. And yet in the midst of it, it predicts his resurrection. Psalm 110, verse 1. And you can take note of these and look them up. That was a thousand years before Jesus was killed. This is 700 years. Isaiah 53. Listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is speaking of the Messiah who would be killed, who would be cut off, as the chapter tells us in detail. And yet, in verse 10 it says, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his, how is he going to prolong his days if he's dead? Right here we see reference to the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So having gone through the anguish, not just physical but internal, emotional, psychological anguish, he is even out of that going to see and be satisfied. Job well done. Mission accomplished. Job satisfaction to the max. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. I.e., by the knowledge of him, he shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the iniquities of those that believe. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. So, mission accomplished, job done. Now the victor spoils the reward. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So notice, this is going to happen after he's poured out his soul to death. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, it was predicted a thousand years, 700 years, even by the lips of Jesus himself, that he would not stay dead. That he would rise from the grave. And you see, the account that we have is too consistent. It is too robust to be dismissed. It is a historical record of an actual event that happened in an actual place at an actual time. Israel, a country no bigger than Wales, 
Jesus coming from one of the suburbs of the suburbs. How does this carpenter from this tiny country of little significance all of a sudden become of global impact? And for 2,000 years and counting. Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. Now listen to this. I bought this book years ago, yeah? Leading lawyers look at the resurrection. Leading lawyers look at the resurrection. It's by an author called Ross Clifford. And I would recommend it to you. If you ever see this book anywhere, buy the book. Now, I had a copy of this book. This isn't my original copy. And I lent it to someone. And you know how that goes, right? I mean, I know what I'm like. I've still probably got some of your books. (laughs) Man said it's true, you know. (laughs) I lent it to someone and... About a year ago, I started to try and find this book again. Couldn't find it. It's out of print. Went on, on Amazon. You know how much they're selling the book for on Amazon? It was 14 pounds, you know. I must have paid about 250 for it when I bought it. But this book is so powerful. I paid the 14 pounds. Oh, where's Judith? <laughs> I paid the 14 pounds. <laughs> it was worth it. It was worth it. Trust me. <laughs> So that I could get, so don't ask me to lend you this book. Yeah, simple. Don't ask me to lend you this book. And this book has the testimonies of the world's leading lawyers with regards to their view on the events of the resurrection and how credible and trustworthy the events are. We have people such as Sir Simon Greenleaf, And and when I say these people are eminent scholars, legal minds, um, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery is regarded as being the architect of the Western legal system. And these lawyers, basically, they give consideration to the gospel accounts, the credibility of the gospel accounts, and if they, the accounts were to be judged in a court of law, as evidence is judged every day, what would be their verdict? True or false? Reliable or spurious, fraudulent lies? What would they regard it to be? Some of these men have given themselves to consider the evidence as being individuals who were not believers. And through the process, became convicted of the truth concerning the resurrection of Christ. Let me share with you a few quotes. This one is from Sir Norman Anderson. And um, let me give you a little bit on his background first. Sir Norman Anderson read law at Cambridge University. The influence of Sir Norman has crossed national borders. He is a respected legal figure in England, United States, the British Commonwealth countries, and the Middle East. He has been a lecturer at Princeton University, New York University, and the Harvard Law School. 
he was offered a professorship for life at Harvard. So you recognize that this guy isn't like just some guy. Yeah? He's a guy that has committed his life to the study of law. Now, listen to this quote that he says here. It is impossible that a being who had been stolen half dead out of the tomb, who crept about weak and ill-wanting, so weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life. It's impossible. The disciples recognize Jesus to be conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life. It is an impression that lay at the heart of their future ministry. So if Jesus had been stolen from the tomb, half dead, ultimately to have died in the end, he's saying that it's actually absolutely a factual absurdity to think that that half-dead man who went on to die inspired these apostles to go on and testify that he is the conqueror of death, that he's risen from the grave. Another one. Sir Lionel Luckhu. He is in the Guinness um, Guinness Book of World Records regarded as being the world's most successful lawyer. He is a defense lawyer who has had a remarkable achievement of 245 successive murder acquittals. Now, he says here, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world and I'm still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials. Being quite humbled here. And I say unequivocally, the evidence for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. He says, unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Beyond reasonable doubt, it is true that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence that we have is reliable. I could give you so many more. Let me just give you a couple more. Charles Colson is a lawyer and was special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He became involved in the political scandal Watergate and gave his life to Christ and is the founder of Prison Fellowship. He wrote this. Take it from one who was inside the Watergate web looking out. 
Now, this is probably one of the biggest political conspiracies in modern history, Watergate. He knew what a cover-up is. He said, I was inside the Watergate web looking out. I saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and Lord. Nothing less than a risen saviour could have motivated their men to keep that testimony even at the end of a sword. See, people want to say, oh, but you can't use the Bible because that's self-evidential and you need to give us something out. Listen, people, first of all, don't appreciate what the Bible is. When you're dealing with a prophecy of a thousand years before the event, how is that self-evidential? When you're dealing with a prophecy 700 years, 400 years, and you keep, there are a multitude of prophecies concerning Christ, his death, and his resurrection. People don't understand what the Bible is. And most of the people that say that, it's like we stand there and say, so have you read the Bible then? Well, no. And yet, even those who are examining the evidence with regards to the scriptures, reliability, and integrity, regard it to be of supreme authority, of supreme integrity. And if they applied the same principles to which they commit people to life sentences every day in the court of law, they take those same principles of evidence examination and apply it to scripture, they recognize it to be of the highest authority beyond any reasonable doubt. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the eternity of humanity hangs on the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. If Jesus never rose, then we cannot expect any life after death. Every single one of our loved ones that we expect to see in a better place are not there. Unless we submit in our hearts to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, we have no other assurance. None. And yet God has given us confident assurance because the tomb is empty. They still cannot find his bones. Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. And so, 
By it we know that we have been justified. So as we read earlier, Romans 4.22 to 25, we see in verse 25 that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was risen up for our justification. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that this was God's validation. This was the means by which God validated the sacrifice of Christ. You see, we recognize that the two events, the two activities have so worked on our behalf that we are completely set free. Justification is a legal term. It means to be acquitted as not being wrong, but being right. Someone might get in an argument and say, well, I don't need to justify myself to you. I don't need to prove that I'm right to you. Well, consider this. Jesus was delivered up for our sins, for our trespasses. And being crucified, Jesus dealt with our guilt. You see, guilt is an emotion that is felt when one understands something wrong that they have done. So something has gone wrong. I've done something wrong and I am objectively guilty. I have broken a standard. I have broken a law, whether it be God's law, man's law, or just the law of my own heart, my own standard. Boy, I tell you, I'd never eat Marmite, you know. And on that day when you was really hungry, nothing else to eat, you just, you couldn't face the dry bread. I said I would never eat Marmite, you know, as you spread it. <laughs> See, guilt can be caused by the breaking of any standard, but at the point at which we break that standard, we have a sense of guilt. We break that law, we have a sense of guilt. And when it comes to the law of God, actually, the scripture makes it clear that God has granted every individual a conscience by which we know right from wrong. That's why you don't have to teach kids to lie. Even when they're terrible at it. Did you eat the chocolate biscuits before your dinner? Face is caked in chocolate. No, mommy. <laughs> Why? Because they know in their heart that they've done something wrong. Psychologists would say guilt is just a state of mind. If you take away these false manufactured standards, then you're free from guilt. And that's called hardening the heart. That's called um, as it says in, in 1 Timothy, searing the conscience. Our conscience, we are made with tender consciences. But what we do is we rationalize things in such a way that 
We get rid of the standards. We excuse the standards. So, you know, it's all right for me to download the music because they get paid lots of money anyway and it's overpriced. And so I break the law because in my mind, I've silenced my conscience with rationalization. That is guilt. And it's something that we all experience. And guilt is something that actually can live with a person. It is not uncommon for men who are about to die on death row as they're strapped to the bed, ready to receive their lethal injection, to begin to confess additional crimes. I watched a program the other day, um, myself and Judith, and on Channel 4 they had a, a short series, a mini-series, on guys who were on death row. And there was one guy, James Barnes, I think his name was, and he had been convicted of murdering his wife, and he had been taken to prison, and he was now on death row. No, in fact, he wasn't even on death row at the time. And whilst he was there in prison, he confessed to another crime. He confessed to another murder. And as a result of that, they put him on death row. And he was like, boy, I didn't think that they would treat me so hard because I came forward. Yeah, whatever sense that makes. But he was there now on death row. And the interviewer asked him, so are there other things that you've done that you would want to confess to? And he said, well, I don't know if I'd want to confess to it because look at the way they've treated me already. And I'm trying to appeal right now. But the guy was like, you know what, forget the system, forget, because at the end of the day, you're basically at the end of a hopeless journey. And the guy was like, he said, but what about your own personal guilt and your desire to bring closure and maybe give some kind of closure to these families who, and the guy said, yeah. He said, you know, I could, I could, I could see myself on that, on that, when on that deathbed, confessing those other crimes that I've committed. Now you'd think, why? Why could, like, just suffer in silence, die, go, leave. But the human heart carries guilt and it's a burden to the soul. It's a burden to the soul. They say that guilt is such that it can even cause someone to become sick because of the stress that it puts on the body. Some have even sought to explore the link between cancer and the stress from guilt. And you see, when we find ourselves in a place where we're guilty, one of the most relieving things is to know that actually that issue is brought out in the open and dealt with. It's a relief. Guilt. God doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. But in the death of Christ, he brought our sin out in the open. And he said, I see that you're guilty. And I see that you deserve judgment. But I also have a remedy for the issue. And I am going to 
I'm going to dish out some punishment. You know, very often, children, by reason of guilt, become very defensive. It's a bit like Cain and Abel, right? Cain makes his offering. Abel makes his offering. God ain't feeling Cain's offering. Cain gets vexed. Let's talk with Abel. He kills Abel. God says to Cain, where's your brother? Cain's response. What are you asking me for? Am I my brother's keeper? Why so touchy? It's like guilt makes us become defensive when we're wrestling with admitting our wrong and just being like, yeah, you know what? God, I killed him. I I just, I couldn't bear it. I was jealous. I was envious. I was a red-eyed, bad mind, whatever you want to call it. And yet, becomes defensive. What are you asking me for? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, Cain, you're actually your brother's killer. (laughs) Guilt can cause people to become dysfunctional. To begin to go on to perpetrate the very things that they're trying to suppress. And one of the greatest reliefs is when the issue is brought out in the open and it's dealt with. And you can feel like, okay, it's been dealt with, I can move on. And God dealt with our sin. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses through which we receive forgiveness. And so... From guilt to forgiveness. And yet we recognize there's something more. There's something more that accompanies guilt. We can know that we've been forgiven. So, you know, we promised the person that we would do that thing and we can't face them anymore. And we have a conversation and they say, it's cool, don't worry about it. And yet after the, after the fact that it's been dealt with, we still can't face them. We feel so bad. Oh no, I really should have given them that money, you know. And we feel such shame. And it's that, it's that emotion that accompanies the concern for how we are perceived in light of the wrong that we've done. And even as Christians, there are so many that that you look back on your past and you're like, I feel such a shame and the madness that I was involved in and the things that I've done. I remember hearing the testimony of a guy who said that as a Christian, he met someone that he had robbed when he was a non-Christian and he recognized them and they recognized him. And there was that sense of shame And yet he went up to them and he said, you know what? I know that back in the day, I I robbed you. And they were like, yeah. And and you know what? I'm asking you to forgive me because I was just wrong to do that. Forgive me. It was completely sinful. And and believe me, I've asked God to forgive me for what I've done. And the person was able to say, 
Yeah, it's all right. And so even though we actually have that sense of forgiveness, we can still carry shame. How are people looking at us? But you know what the resurrection says? The resurrection says, not only are you forgiven, not only are you like that student who was cheating on tests and they were plagiarizing essays and got caught out and they stood there in the principal's office and they said, look, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. You know that I've had problems. My mum's had cancer and I've got my little brother and sister to take care of and I just have been just unable to hold it all together and I'm trying not to flunk this course and that was, that was just a foolish way of me trying to just stay on it. And so they say, okay, we're not going to kick you out. We're not going to expose you for what you've done. But you now need to go back and do that work. We're giving you a second chance. Now, on one hand, there's relief there, right? On one hand, there's forgiveness. On one hand, there's a second chance. But on the other hand, his situation hasn't changed. The funeral's next week. He's still got his little brother and sister. And he's standing there thinking, well, I'm grateful for for the forgiveness, but I don't know how I'm going to meet this standard now. And for so many of us as Christians, that's where we feel like we're at. But the resurrection says, you are favored. You are credited as being just. You are recognized as righteous. And so you imagine the scenario. That student stands in the office and they say, don't worry about what's happened. And furthermore, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pass your first year. Go and take care of the funeral. Go and take care of all that you need to do. You've passed. We don't need to see you again until next October. See, not only forgiven for the wrong, but credited with right. Credited with a status that he did not deserve, that he did not earn, that he did not work for. And that is us. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. And we know this because Christ is righteous. He didn't stay dead. Dead couldn't hold him down. Jesus is alive. You see, death came into the world through sin. And it was only at that point on the cross when Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world that he was able to die. He wasn't even able to die before that because he was sinless. And yet at that point he died. And having completed the job, paid in full the penalty, taken in full the punishment, he was then free from all sin. Because he never had sin of his own. He fulfilled the legal requirement. And having fulfilled it, he was raised from the dead as an assurance, as a demonstration. So that we could know that we are forgiven. So that we could know that we are favored. (laughs) 
Jesus has rescued us from the guilt of breaking God's law. He is the only means of rescue, of forgiveness in that regard. And his resurrection confirms to us that we are favored, that we are recipients of his righteousness. We've received, we've been credited with his righteous status. It's like it's all well and good coming out of overdraft. You're on zero, you still got no money. What are you going to put on your Oyster card? Are you going to... It's like, you still need dough, you still need money. You come out of overdraft and you got like five zeros credited to your account. You get one of them random tax rebates, three zeros. Some of you will be glad to see two zeros. But it's a credit. And we see through Christ being delivered for our sin according to the scriptures and raised for our justification that we've been delivered from the guilt of law breaking and the shame that follows. That our status has been changed. Why? How do we know for a certainty that it's not Reliant on us. It's not reliant on how impressive we feel that we are toward God this week. We've really been reading. Oh, really been praying. I went to church like three times this week. No. It's because Jesus paid the satisfactory price. And it was received, affirmed, validated, authenticated by means of the sure and certain resurrection from the grave Christ is risen let's pray Father we thank you we thank you we thank you for giving us what we don't deserve such is your mercy we deserve judgment We deserve punishment. And yet, Lord, you did not give us that. You gave it to your son. You did dish it out. You did dispense it upon Christ in our place. And so now legally having died with him, been identified in his death, him as our substitute, we have been risen with him unto newness of life. No more to look back on our past with shame because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. That was the old us. But we are a new person in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great assurance that you've given us. Thank you for the great comfort to the soul that you've given us. This reality that stands outside of our own imaginations, outside of our own minds, is completely objective. An event that happened in time and space, prophesied, recorded in history, 
standing, irrefutable, unchangeable. Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. Thank you, Father. And may the reality of that revolutionize our lives. May the reality of that cause us to be changed and transformed more and more into his image and likeness. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the team to come back and um, ask if we'd stand. And I asked, as I asked them to um, just to lead us in one song to finish, I'm going to challenge. I'm certain that there are individuals here today who have yet to submit your heart and life to Jesus Christ as Lord. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that actually, you know what? God sent Christ into the world. Having done so, he commands that all people... just entered into the twilight zone <laughs> you can feel the presence of the Lord right now hold on this is off so okay you've yet to surrender your heart to Christ as Lord you've sub- yet to submit to Jesus as saviour in Acts 17 that God commands all people everywhere to repent is quite simple he has given sure and categoric evidence that he is holy that he is righteous and that he is love and that he has demonstrated his love in giving his son and has raised him from the dead And so there's no excuse. You can't sit down and say you believe Julius Caesar, you believe in Herod the Eight, and you believe in all of these other characters of history, not having met them, you weren't there, and say that you don't believe in Christ, and you don't believe he's Lord. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no in-between. And the resurrection demonstrates very clearly that Jesus is Lord. And he calls you to come. Submit your heart to him and be changed. 
be freed from the guilt and shame of your past. Know that you can have peace with God. You can start an absolutely new life today should you surrender to him. And should you choose to defy the almighty God, then the only thing that is reasonable to expect is judgment. He's God. He's not, you know, the, 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 the genie in Aladdin. He's God, the almighty who made us. And so the Lord calls you today to come. Surrender your heart and life and receive forgiveness. Amen.